Hello there, Waffleisters. Hello, you're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment with a slice of cake. My name's Chris Morrison. And my name's Jane Secker. We're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks and we run the website copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering. And we're your hosts for Copyright Waffle, an archive of amazing chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright. So our guest on this episode is author, historian and 25th holder of the post of Bodley's Librarian at the University of Oxford, Richard Ovenden. This episode of Copyright Waffle was recorded a little while ago. It was recorded in August of 2022, in fact. We recorded it at the Bodleian Library, which was fantastic, but we did have some audio issues as they were putting up scaffolding outside Richard's office. So we're really grateful to Mike Collins from the Pedagodzilla podcast who helped clean up the audio file for us. There's still a bit of background noise, but we think it's a lot better now, don't we? We do, yes. Yeah. So if you join us in Richard's office where we get to talk about his copyright history, what Bodley's Librarian does on a typical day and his best-selling book, Burning the Books. We probably ought to mention that we refer to the UK government's intention to expand the text and data mining exception for commercial uses, which was the case back in August of 2022. But it was subsequently abandoned in March 2023. So on that note, let's get on with the podcast. Hear what Richard has to say. Take it away. The place I wanted to start, many people these days, you ask them about what they do for a living, what their job is. Sometimes it can be quite confusing because many jobs only were created in the last 10, 20 years. Your job's existed since 1600. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. So my, uh, I'm the 25th librarian okay. of the, um, of the Bodleian Libraries, uh, as it's now called, the yes. Bodleian Library, when it first started, and the first person was Thomas James. Yes. Um, so he was the first person, um, I think at the time called Proto Bibliotecarius. Okay. <laughs> and then Bodleian Librarian, and that's my job title now is Bodleian Librarian. Excellent. And presumably the job description has shifted slightly in the intervening time? I think a little bit, yeah. yeah. So um, there were two posts endowed, indeed, by Sir Thomas Bodley in, in 1600. Bodley's librarian and Bodley's janitor, mm. uh, a post we now call chief operating officer. Right. And um, so they, that was the staffing of the library when it opened in November 1602. And of course it's now... We now have about 700 people on the payroll. It's about 500 full-time equivalents. And my role has also expanded to cover um, the leadership of a group of cultural and scientific institutions in the university called Gardens, Libraries and Museums. So the Botanic Gardens and the four university museums as well as the Bodleian Library. And it is great to be here in, in Oxford today. Um, mm. And just, just for the record, I am, so I am employed at the University of Oxford in the Bodleian Library, so um, I'm, I'm going to be watching what I say, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's great to be here. Yes. I, I wondered if you could actually say a little bit about what, what's it like a typical day like, or is there a typical day? I don't think there really the is a typical day. Um, I, I get asked, asked this question a number of times, and really what I tend to say is that the the kind of working the typical working day of nine till five is almost always full of meetings yeah many of which i'm chairing those which are internal to the bodleian or now to gardens libraries and museums or they are sort of university committees which i sit on to represent those institutions and so i'm now getting back into that mode of being, walking around the university between mm. meeting venues, between committee rooms. Either we're sitting in my office in the Clarendon Building on Broad Street as part of the Bodleian, and my office is, I often describe it as a meeting room which happens to have my desk in it. <laughs> so, um, you know, and often we say there's a traffic light outside my door for people coming in and out, you know, the groups that come in. So, so that's quite often the full day, yeah. Um, and then I come into work fairly early, and I, I I I leave sort of you know in the early evening, and they're the times when I actually do my job. 
yeah. yeah. That's when I answer emails or send emails or write, do my report writing. Um, and because the rest of that day is, is just a kind of cycle of meetings. Now, that does vary because a lot of the university committees are driven by the academic term. Mm, and so mm. in Oxford, you'll say, I can tell you where I'm going to be on Monday afternoon of second week of term, because I'll be in this committee or that committee, which are really much driven by those university calendars. Yes. And, yeah. and the standing committees meet every, you know, on eighth week or sixth week or Wednesday of fifth week is Balliol College's governing body meeting, which as a trustee of the college, I have to be there. All of those kind of things. And that's, that's the thing I'm getting used to now is that that university calendar way of yeah. working things and everything is the, the numbered week and the and the, yeah. and the different terms yeah it's taken me a good 10 years to get used to the being able to translate what you know second week of um monday of second week in michaelmas term actually means in terms of the calendar oh okay so that's probably about october the 26th or whatever yeah whatever it is um yeah yeah. So how long have you actually you've been at the, the Bodleian? I've been now? in the Bodleian um, for 19 years. Oh, okay, okay. And as Bodleian's librarian, the Grand Fromage, as it were, yes. um, uh, since January 2014. So yeah. I'm, I'm sort of coming up to nine years in that role. Yeah. And I had various roles before then. I came in as Keeper of Special Collections, um, so I had that very much special collections focus, yeah. then I had uh, conservation and collections care added to the portfolio, then um, IT or digital got added onto that. Um, I then became deputy librarian in, in 2011, which then covered, um, uh, IT got moved out of the portfolio and uh, the subject focused libraries um, added, so the, the main, the, the big teams of humanities, science, medicine and social science and the subject libraries because now the Bodleian is a network of 27 mm. library sites. Mm. Um, that, I, I did that for, um, for three years mm. until my predecessor uh, left and I, I, took, I, I became an acting librarian and then confirmed in role. And would you say, sort of, over over that time, you've you've had many conversations about copyright? Is it? Is it? Um, is it? It's it's been a kind of, I'd say, a kind of constant refrain. It's gone through phases, I yeah. would say. So I was very much involved in the establishment of the institutional repository, right, back in probably two thousand five mm. onwards. So, you know, establishing what is today Aura, the Oxford University Research Archive, and then following that the mandate on electronic theses inside the university, yeah. so that became a kind of statutory thing. I was very much involved in that. And so establishing those two services and the kind of policy um, development that went around that was, was a big thing. And I also led the universities or the, the Bodleians engagement with Google in their mass digitization project between 2004, 2009. Ooh. And there was a, you know, there's big copyright element of that, working out which books we were going to scan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we started off as part of five libraries, four of them in the United States and us outside. And we all took different views on what we were comfortable with scanning with Google yeah. and, and had different approaches to that. And so there was a big copyright element of that, a big copyright element to the institutional repository and e-theses. And then it's sort of those two big projects kind of settled. We've always had digitization of special collections. So that's, there's all often been a kind of copyright element to that. Yeah. And then occasionally when we bought special collections materials, particularly archives, particularly archives where there've been writers involved, We've increasingly been interested in the copyright element of those acquisitions or bequests. Mm, so mm. we purchased the archive of Edward Heath, the Prime Minister, and part of that we acquired the his copyright. Right, right. Um, so we began to think more holistically, I think, around copyright. Yeah. Not just in terms of, um, if you like, 
copying, digitization yeah. of physical things, but the born digital and then you know, interesting things about literary estates and, and so on and the copyright elements of those. So that was one of the things that you write about in, in Burning the Books, and, mm. um, looking at, at Byron's estate, which was yeah, pre, you know, the stuff that is now out of copyright, but then Sylvia Plath's mm. um, estate and her writings and, and uh, Ted Hughes and, and everything that happened there. So copyright is a key component in controlling literary and public reputations. There's that tension that you write about between yeah. the, the, the private interests and wishes of, of a literary or a public figure and yeah. the public interest in getting access to, to, to interesting archival material. Yeah. I, I mean, it's really about the control of knowledge. Yeah. How, mm. how knowledge is controlled has, is multifaceted, but mm. copyright is, a key, is one of the key ways in which access to knowledge can be controlled and sometimes that is you know can be in my view misused as yeah. Well, yeah, trying yeah. to raise those issues particularly in the the two chapters around literary property mm. and you know it's very interesting they're very complex issues there's uh, and quite often there are families involved mm. Mm. It, become, it boils down to a sort of human relationships mm. Mm. and that's where it becomes incredibly interesting and and some of the the archives that we have, the St. General Tolkien's archive, and we don't own it in its entirety, but mm. most of it is sat in the Bodleian Library. Some of it we own, it was given to us by General Tolkien or, or his estate. Some of it is on deposit in the library, and we manage it together with the, um, the literary estate. Yeah. And so working with them, with their lawyers who are intellectual property lawyers who act for the estate, with the family members, is a very complex and time-consuming and, 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 and important thing because the literary property is very valuable, mm. very mm. valuable indeed, mm. you know, and we're just about to have Amazon's Rings of Power series. Yes. And so that acquisition of the, the rights to turn General Tolkien's imaginary world into a Amazon blockbuster TV series is a, is a been a huge thing for the for the estate and we're you know we're very we're we're, we're involved in that whole kind of process as we were um, in earlier versions of books and films and those other adaptations yeah because they eventually come down to the the things that have the writings or the drawings or the paintings of those Mm. In those individuals who created that mm. in, you know, amazing world. Mm. I think, I mean, the book is, for me, I, I would say it should be like a, a central reading for anyone who wants to be a librarian, who <laughs> is a librarian. <laughs> is, is, it, is it on the reading list or the library? I, I don't know. I, I don't know, actually. I, I, yeah, no, I haven't. Well, I mean, no, I'm, I'm actually well, quite genuine that I, I yeah. really, you know, I, I read it and it, it kind of. It, it made me remember the kind of initial sort of when I was in the early days of being a librarian, you know, that kind of passion I had to say, well, no, actually, this is such an important job, you know, to, to preserve things, to also obviously make them available and not for things like copyright to get in the way of that. Obviously, you yeah. know, we have got to respect the wishes of... of yeah authors and and their families and things but but the kind of the the power and the the importance of keeping that knowledge i think comes through so strongly in the book that for anybody who was perhaps flagging a bit in their career <laughs> they, you know it can really kind of you know yeah. reawaken that but for new librarians as well yeah. you know i think many of them are very very passionate about access to information so yeah yeah well thank you because that's what i wanted to do was to highlight the essential role that the institutions of libraries and archives play in society. Yeah, and, and how critical it is right at this moment in our world history when knowledge is being attacked in new and more interesting, if I can say that in a Confucian way, yeah, ways. Yeah. But also how we stand in a long line of our predecessors who've literally laid down their lives for Absolutely, yeah. the knowledge of their communities, for society, yeah. and seeing it as being a lifeblood. Yeah, yeah. The importance of 
preserving that knowledge for a yeah. you know for a, a culture and a society and some of yes. the sort of destruction of lives you talk about in the book really you know did make me feel really quite emotional I have to say and well, you know it's it's yeah, yeah so it is a fantastic read and clearly there are lots of stories about about conflict and about the sorts of um, sort of physical attacks on libraries, but one of the areas we wanted to to talk to you about, um, clearly a link to copyright, was around the digital world and mm. digital preservation. So you you write in I think it's the final chapter in the book about what role do libraries play in preserving all the digital information, which is currently under you know, the control of private hands. We use all of these big tech services; all mm. that data is there. So do you want to talk to us a bit mm. about? The situation as you see it, how copyright law restricts or perhaps gets in the way of that and, and, and what it is that, that we might be able to do to kind of help libraries serve that purpose in yeah. the digital world. Well, I, I think it is one of the kind of critical things for society actually at the mm. moment because we have never created as much knowledge, if you like, as human society ever before in our mm. history. And the platforms that we use to create and share it are owned by private corporations, what my colleague in Oxford, Timothy Dutton-Nash, Professor of European History, calls private superpowers. Mm. And I think we've fallen into this by accident. You know, to quote my favourite film, we've come on holiday by mistake. Um, <laughs> And we've become so used to the convenience and the power of those technolo technologies, the platforms, the, the, the hardware, looking at my interviewer's <laughs> kit um, before me, uh, and indeed at my own, um, that we've become dependent on them for so much of what we do. And it's become not only a force of habit and of convenience, but to some extent, an, an addiction. Yeah. You know, we can't stop ourselves from doing it. I can't stop myself from doing it. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is reach for my smartphone and yeah. look at my email, my social media, all of those things. And, and that means that we're creating, free of charge, knowledge which those tech companies, the private superpowers, are using to commercialise that interaction that we have with those devices. So they're taking our knowledge, they are build, bundling it up, creating mm. profiles of our, if you like, knowledge interactions mm. to, uh, to try to make assumptions about us, to predict the future. And that prediction of the future, of what our behaviours might be like, we understand now to have been driven by commercial imperatives to try and predict what our buying patterns would be like and therefore to direct advertising that would be very person specific and to some extent moment specific for us. Now what we're increasingly aware of is the ability to, to use that same data, that same process, that same if you like information architecture to target us not just with commercial information but political information, mm. targeted political advertising for example, mm. or to harvest that data to understand, particularly as we move into the internet things, actually what our three-dimensional behaviour is like. Did we go to this place or that place yeah. on this particular dime? Is that a pattern? And so all of that information which is channeled through commercial data architectures is channeled through hardware which is owned by tech companies. Yeah. We are giving all of that information for nothing. We are signing up to it. We're clicking through those licenses without reading them mm. and making those tech companies more and more powerful each time we have those interactions. And their power, I allude in the book to them being like the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Yeah. You know, they are above any individual political jurisdiction. They are multi, truly multinational. They have a common lingua 
franker, if you like, mm. and they can see into our souls. <laughs> and we have no good real power against them. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So I think we're in a difficult position as a human, as society, because mm. of that imbalance in power. And I think libraries and archives should be playing a role, firstly, in trying to preserve that data, whether it's social media interactions, which you, know, you can see on a screen. Mm. That might be, if you like, the simplest thing. But the data that travels underneath that, mm. which started off life being called ad tech data, yeah. um, but is now much, much broader than that, we should be sampling that, we should be taking that, because that's the only way that we can understand what society is like, what it's doing, what the patterns were mm -hmm. in this day and age that we live in. Mm. And we have been doing, we've been nibbling at this elephant, but eating it whole is going to be a massive, massive task, but we need to begin. Mm. Because without it, in a hundred years' time, we won't really be able to understand how we got to that human society in a hundred years' time without understanding what the, the technological data, communication, knowledge world was like. Yeah. Because we, it's my view that we are able to understand ourselves today because of the knowledge that we have of our past. The information that is stored in libraries and archives are like stepping stones mm, to mm. the future that we now are in. Mm. And the stepping stones to our next future, we need to collect and preserve and make those available. Mm. And, and the copyright implications of that are we have legal deposits and Bodleian is one of the six legal deposit libraries in the UK so and was instrument was the first library to require deposit uh, well that's not that's not quite true okay. no so our founder Sir Thomas Bodley and my predecessor brokered a deal an arrangement with the company stationers who essentially have a monopoly of printing and publishing yeah. in Britain, except the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, who had special privileges for printing the Bible and other works. Mm. The company stationers and a guild, a, a trade guild in London, had a royal charter, and that meant that you could only publish or print works if you were a freeman of the company stationers. And what my predecessors did was to link it to the intellectual property. So, you know, the argument went, and I'm grossly oversimplifying it, but if you were a printer or a publisher in London and a member of the company stationers, in order to prove your right to that property, you entered the title of the books that you were going to publish in a register held by the company stationers, and you paid a fee to have your title the title of your book entered into the stationer's register. And if somebody came and printed the same book, you could take them to court. And the proof that it was you that had made that investment in the typesetters and the paper and all of that thing was your name against the entry of that title in the stationer's register. So it would be taken into court and used as evidence. Mm. And you had to pay a fee to enter your title into the register. Now, there were many books for, for numerous reasons never were entered legitimately in the register but never got published, mm. never appeared in print. And so there was this kind of grey area. And I think the argument was, well, your proof that you did actually go through with the task of publishing and printing would be if the physical book is preserved in a collection somewhere. So give it to my library ah. and we will look after it for you. So in case your members have trouble in the future, they can come to the library and, the and it will, will be, be there, there. Because yes. we will preserve it. Yeah. So that mission of preservation was linked in a very kind of broad and amorphous way to copyright. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's about evidence. Mm. And mm. that evidence was an informal arrangement in sixteen ten. It became uh, somewhat linked in law with the licensing acts of the 1660s and 1670s, and then was eventually enshrined in law in the copyright acts of Queen Anne in 1710. Yeah. And the right of you know, the link then to deposit.
deposit as a legal requirement, that's when it comes into force. Mm -hmm. And that's extended to other libraries, to the University of Cambridge, to Trinity Dublin, to the Faculty of Af Advocates in Scotland, to the three ancient universities in Scotland, to Sion College, I missed someone out. The National Libraries? No, well the National Libraries, the Bodleian was the National Library right. in the effect, because at that time, because the British Library is established only in 1753 mm -hmm. as, the, as a department of the British Museum. The National Library of Scotland didn't exist until the 20th century, nor the National Library of Wales. Mm -hmm. So, the Bodleian was the only one of the libraries that was had a public mission. So we were, together with the Ambrosian Library in Milan, essentially the only public libraries in Europe. Mm. Wow. So that idea of Sir Thomas Bodley's back in the early 17th century, that the Bodleian was not just a private library. Yeah. For members of for the members public of the university, It was open to the whole Republic of the Learned. So that idea of the Renaissance, it, Republic of Letters, which is, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, gets further established in the early Enlightenment, is is part of the founding mission of the library, and that link between preservation and broad access, I think, of course I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> but is is enshrined in that foundational history of the Bodleian. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The, so where we are now with legal deposits and we do have legislation for non-print legal deposits so there is a requirement for anyone who is publishing digital material that it does it is available through those legal deposit libraries but it, it, it doesn't work in an optimal way does it it doesn't no, it address doesn't. all it those doesn't. issues you were talking about yeah. with all of those those data yeah. sets and everything else which is in, in in private hands well, it was a bold step to enact the legislation, both the primary and secondary mm. leg legislation, in the first decade of this century. I think it was a visionary step to take. But the way that the legislation, in practice, the regulations mm. of 2013 were established, because it takes a long time to pick things, to, to develop things in, in law, it's a slow process, particularly when it has to go through Parliament. And technology is moving so fast, and I think this is part of the problem that we're in, is that the tech companies get richer and richer. So they're able to move faster and faster. Yeah. And the legislation is slow and ponderous. So the position that we've ended up with, with the 2013 legislation, and I chaired the committee that oversaw the implementation of, the, of that legislation, is, is problematic in a number of ways. And I think one of the key differences is that the 2013 legislation for electronic deposit established perpetual copyright. Mm -hmm. Now, that really means that we'd be better off not taking any electronic journals or books, because at least in physical form, their copyright expires. Yeah. But in the electronic, as currently framed, mm -hmm. it, it never expires. Mm. So it cannot be, it cannot enter the public realm mm. properly because um, the other parts of the legislation limit access to it to devices which are in the premises mm. controlled by the libraries mentioned in the Act, mm. Mm. which are the five libraries in the United Kingdom and Trinity College Dublin. So that is a fundamental flaw in the way that the legislation was framed and one which I think we need to change. Mm. And I think we are, it's, in essence, it's not a problem now, but it's a problem that we're, will come into effect. Down the line, won't it? 70 years yeah. from 2013, yeah. when we won't be able to share that material. Um, Historians of the future will will not think any of maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, any scholars yeah. Of, yeah. The, of the future. Mm, mm. Uh, and and so you know, copyright is very much at the heart of that. And then we've got the right to capture the whole of the UK web domain. Yeah. And there, the the issues are you know, and we've been doing whole domain portals now since 2013, mm. and, and under uh, sorry 2014 after the the, the act was. Uh, the, the regulations were established and so we have a growing corpus of material but again the 
that there are all sorts of limits as we do this. It's really a research and development project that yeah. will never end. Yeah. And uh, and we encounter kind of continued technological barriers to us being able to effectively collect it. And some of that is around the dynamism of the, the tech industry, the platforms, you know, the mm. websites that are driven dynamically. How do you capture the Guardian website? Mm. Mm. Well, it's it's almost impossible yeah. to do that in a because it changes constantly during yeah. the day. Yeah. Now, in the print world, a newspaper would be printed multiple times a day, and the editions would would alter depending on where it was printed. And the kind of classic example is the New York Times, which, because of the time differences back in, you know, the day that Kennedy was assassinated, you know, the early editions of the New York Times did not cover the assassination mm. for obvious reasons. Mm. And so there are many microfilm sets of the, the New York Times, which libraries relied on, threw their paper copies away, which were based on a set of the New York Times in the New York Public Library only included the early editions. So don't cover the New York Times for the day Kennedy assassinated did not cover the the assassination. So the later editions published on the West Coast, five hours behind, of course, did. did yeah. Um, yeah. But the microfilm sets that lots of libraries now have as their New York Times right. were based on were not based on mm. West Coast Library collection. So it's not an entirely novel problem. It is new, it's but it's entirely a novel problem. Yeah. And, you know, there are kind of, you know, there are, you know, the, uh, and the, the responses to it obviously have to be different. But one of the responses we've come up with is actually, let's look at the PDFs that are used to generate the print. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. So, you know, is that a better solution than taking snapshots? Snapshots of the the front page of the website exactly. every or every 10 minutes or something. Yeah, but massive websites. Yeah, of course. Constantly. And the resources that we have as a set of libraries are limited. Yeah. And we co-fund it. Yeah. The team is based in the British Library, but the, 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 the six of us kind of pool our financial resources. Yeah. And to some extent our curatorial teams to help select deeper web archiving as um, under the, the umbrella of the UK web archive. But it's it, the, the, you know, we're really limited by the, the financial resources we have at a time when the use of the digital publishing thought of more broadly from the web to sort of more traditional forms of publishing like ebooks and e-journals is just growing all the time. Mm. And you think of you know maps, for example, where we've been used to you know traditional mapping from. Ordnance Survey and mm. map companies, and you know, paper mapping is vast. You know, rapidly disappearing. Of course. And you know, we've been taking deposits from from Ordnance Survey for a number of years now on a voluntary basis. But how you archive essentially very very complex databases, mm. which is what mapping, you know, digital mapping is now. Mm. You you write about the difference between. UK and what happens in the US and you write about the, the internet archive and, and the way back machine so mm. do you think would you think it would be more helpful if we had a legal regime that was more like the American one where we were able to rely more on fair use rather than the quite the more limited fair dealing we have in the UK I, I think it would be helpful in the web domain I think the web is you know is a publishing platform mm. but it's the, there are vast ranges of use of it. There's the big commercial websites, Amazon obviously is an obvious one, or the big newspapers. But then there are there's a very very long tail of just private individuals who you know have a small website mm. run from their homes as you know as kind of amateurs or small businesses, and for. For them, the contact that we've had through our web archiving is that they really welcome us archiving their websites because it saves them from doing it and they they feel proud that, oh my God, you know, my website. We, 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 we felt were, very proud. We were excited <laughs> for our website and we were delighted, weren't we? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the pushback we get is mostly from the kind of commercial agencies who sure. see this as a potential threat to them. Yeah. 
yeah. that, that come out. And I, you know, I have a lot of sympathies for them. It's, it's, it's a fair comment, but I don't think the risks are really, are really there. So I would, I would welcome a m more generous approach to this. Mm. And I, I hugely respect what the Internet Archive have done. Again, yeah. you know, Brewster Kale's a visionary mm. individual. Mm. But it, 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 it's a small organisation. It know, is, I've been yeah. to mm. see them in situ. Um, and and they're, a, they're a small organisation. They're a not-for-profit. And, you know, I think one of the things I try to show in, the, in my book is that the preservation knowledge over long periods of time requires structures which are more enduring. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. hopefully, a place like the University of Oxford is uh, an enduring institution. Why yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it seems to have been so far. Yeah. Yes. For at least... 900 years so yeah we've, we've sort of been talking quite a bit i think about the tension between preservation and access you know when when it comes to libraries and to the library here i wonder if you could say a bit more about the opportunities and the challenges that there are for those you know in the library cultural heritage sector um and we're thinking about this idea of wanting to preserve things but then if we're preserving them for the kind of common good and the wider public, how, how much we should be actually putting things out into the public domain, yeah. openly licensing? Yeah. I mean, I, I, fundamentally, I don't think that there is a tension between those two things, no. because you can't have access without preservation. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the basic issue. And I think, again, in an institution like the Bodleian, we try to think in longer periods of time. Yeah. So, you know, we have plenty of archives which are not accessible mm. at the moment because mm. of mm. the wishes of the depositors or mm. donors who say, you know, I'd rather not have this material made accessible mm. until I'm dead. And yeah. we respect that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we have to, and again, it's one of the things, themes in my book, perhaps I don't bring it out strongly enough, is that we need to think as a society in longer periods of time. Mm. I think we become so driven by immediacy mm. and, you know, and, and, and that's, a lot of that is driven by commercial imperatives, you know, immediate return on investment. We've seen this in the climate crisis, that lack of long-term thinking, mm. that lack of um, thinking for our successors. So that's the kind of, the, the, the place I'm coming from in all of this, as it were. But on the access side, you know, people want the information now. Yeah. And, and again, we've become used to, because of the way that the tech world is framed, its commercial imperatives are around fulfilling those immediate needs mm. and wants. So that's where copyright is, um, comes in the middle of that nexus, I prefer to call it a kind of nexus yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. a tension which implies uh, a problem or a headache at least. <laughs> um, and, and that is one where I, I think there is scope for some relaxation of the current regime. I mm. think, you know, the, the whole issue we found with Google was around risk and I think we can afford to take a more relaxed view on some of these issues around risk in terms of digitizing the past and making it more accessible. Mm. And that's, you know, the whole kind of orphan works agenda comes into play there. Yeah. And to some extent, I think there is also a kind of resourcing issue here, which is about our ability to undertake both preservation and enable more broader access mm. because the resources required to do that properly are significant for an institution like mine. Mm. We're constantly looking for funds to do more digitization but also to do digital preservation properly and one of the issues I raise in the book is the idea that the tech industry is making such vast profits and we've seen even you know so the book was published in september 2020 mm. it was essentially written almost a year earlier and in that passage of time the tech industry is it's 
profitability has gone mm. even higher. Mm. So I'd like to see some of that profit come back in the form of, I posit the idea of a memory tax, mm -hmm. to come back to the memory institutions mm. to fund their ability to preserve knowledge and to make it available mm. for society and to have some of the legal and regulatory regimes changed so that they benefit the individual rather than you know the commercial entities because where we stand at the moment many cultural heritage institutions including Bodleian will charge licensing fees to get access to material in order to sustain the operation of digitization which as you say is is hugely expensive yeah. uh, but that's an area where there's many people in the in the open glam world who say this stuff should be made openly available there is a greater benefit and in fact it's it's a requirement of copyright law particularly for older material to, yeah. to, to be to not have unnecessary legal restrictions on access to it but most of that licensing are licenses that we sign from commercial publishers I mean that's the vast majority of the access and use of the library's collections today mm. is because of licenses that we pay, that we sign from commercial publishers and pay them to be able to make available mm. through our mm. networks to our end users. Yeah. Mm. So that's the that's the the day to day reality. If you look at the numbers, if you look at the usage that's actually made, that's where the vast majority of use happens. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, it made me think news, about what's currently what's in, going in the on? news. Yeah, yeah. We, we, have a, we have a jingle. Copyright news, 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 copyright So, in case you missed it, that's the copyright news section. We'd like to ask you if there's anything happening at the moment in your world which has a copyright implication that you wanted to share with us? Um... Well, I guess the library is just embarking on a new strategy, and part of that strategy has an increased focus on digitization mm. and of the under the digital preservation umbrella on approaching things like archiving social media and those uh, aspects of uh, as we were talking earlier about kind of public life today, mm. and how can we increase the amount of digitalization that we're doing of our analog collections mm. how can we properly manage to play our part in a nexus of libraries around the world and archives in uh, preserve capturing preserving and making available born digital information and i think copyright is going to feature much more prominently in our strategic future because of those two kind of major agendas. So I think there's, it's not quite news as it were, um, in, in the current affairs way, but in terms of the, the immediate future as we begin to kind of put more shape around how we're gonna take those projects forward. And that's certainly going to be part of the gardens, libraries and museums agenda as well. Yeah. And then as we encounter more and more the collecting of archives of individuals or organizations because so we are now beginning to find people depositing archives or their descent you know their descendants their heirs their executors of people who died in recent years their archival collections are increasingly in digital form or at least in hybrid form and so your email Mm. If you were to, you know, if I was to die tomorrow, my heirs would face not only the stuff in my filing cabinets no. here and at home, but um, my work email, my mm. private email, my social media accounts, mm. all those kind of linked online services. Photos, videos, photos, things, you yeah. know, all of those. Yeah. How do we take? a view on how we embrace a person's life in mm. their archival forms. No one's going to be interested in my, my stuff, but you know, if you take a sort of prominent writer or a prominent mm. politician, you know, the libraries across the road in the Western Library will find thousands of linear meters of shelving of 
you know, seven prime ministers archives. Mm. Mm. So, should um, we be archiving their tweets? And their... We absolutely should be archiving their tweets. Yeah. But also, we should be taking snapshots of their desktop. And, mm. Mm. Um, I guess this is news in terms of you know the conduct of good government, mm. which is driven at the moment by you know the use of private messaging. Yes. Yeah. WhatsApp. Yeah. As we saw with Partygate, mm. that so much of uh, our public policy is being developed by government ministers, senior civil servants, special advisers, communicating via encrypted communication systems. And you talked about that in the book, being potentially. I an talked issue. about that. It's like almost like and, a premonition. And, 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 the, and the Donald Trump Twitter thing is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the documents and all of that. Yeah. I hate to say it, but I. And then I also yeah. wrote, uh, after the book was published, I, I've written a couple of op-eds, uh, one in the Financial Times and one in the Times, mm -hmm. on precisely the use of encrypted Good. messaging Good. systems. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of a few months later, the whole party day issue kind of mm -hmm. essentially ends our current Prime Minister's term of office. Yeah. And those of many civil servants and... I did keep going back and checking when you'd written the book, actually. <laughs> it was, it was where's this crystal um, <laughs> It was 2019, though. It was, wasn't it? Uh, and to me, the 1958 Public Records Act provides a very clear legal framework mm. for those, for the, the, the archive, mm. the archiving of those documents, both for the long-term historical record, but also for them to come under the remit of the Information Commissioner. Yeah. And uh, freedom yeah. of information. And indeed, there has been a group called the Citizens and the Good Law Project, which did seek a judicial review on this very issue. And unfortunately, there were the, the, judici the judicial review did not accept the, the claim mm. that that group had. But the, the, the adjudication was quite balanced, actually, and basically said, you know, more work needs to be done in this area to firm up the requirement of the data controllers, in this case, the cabinet office, yeah. in terms of requiring certain systems to be used or certain protocols so that the messages aren't, either aren't encrypted or self-deleting. Mm. So I think there's a whole area which I think libraries and archives need to get more involved in because we're going to end up with the papers of some of these individuals. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it could be just part of the story, couldn't it? And it's it? a critical part of the story. Yeah. And, and, and we can't wait until those individuals have died no. because it's too late. Yeah. We need to be working with them while they're while they're still living, still creating their archives so that they can be properly managed and we can think ahead to the time when, you know, when should certain material be made available. And I think we're going to have to be talking more to the regulators mm -hmm. and getting involved more in the, the setting of regulatory frameworks. And I think libraries and archives are not in that conversation. No, no. And we need to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's the kind of news story I like. It's current, but not so current that it makes me, gives me an imperative to edit it within, say, a week. <laughs> Someone says, yes, there's an event happening in three weeks' time that I'd like all your listeners to know about. So I'm going to edit it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's excellent. And, and yeah. thinking about um, archives and all that digital content, I know we mentioned to you the, the conversation we had with Mark Lewis and the, the last episode that we, um, that yeah. we published. And, and he's certainly one of these, uh, and there must be other researchers like him, I guess there's no one quite like Mark, uh, but he's got an awful lot of material in, in paper form, but there's so much of what he's got that he relies on this digital digital his archive. digital archive was probably twice the size of his yeah. print archive. And, and that's the kind of thing that clearly, there's the paper stuff that needs to go somewhere, he's, he's spoke to us about that, but ultimately that digital archive is, it, a lot of it's from archives out all around the world, but other stuff that he's taken mm. himself which is going to be absolutely fascinating for, for future mm. generations mm. so uh, and i think i think sort of the, one of the other things that worries me is around the use of kind of scraping the web by mm. researchers mm. which happens a lot i'm very much aware of it in in this institution and that's being used for private research but it's 
it's not being placed in publicly accessible repositories. Mm, mm. And so the whole idea of the reproducibility of science, mm. the verification of research findings, the, the ability to place in a transparent way, in, this, in our case, in our institutional repository, so that those research findings can be verified by yeah. other researchers, or indeed reused and build, built on by other researchers. Mm. I think that's a piece that you know, we need to do more work on. And again, mm. we need to be um, talking to research funders to require more of that to happen. Yeah. But in order to do that, I can see the challenges that you know, researchers, particularly in social sciences, have, where they need to kind of take stuff off of various kind of websites to understand it, but they're reluctant, it's, it's difficult for them to then publish that, those Absolutely. data sets. And that's yeah. where the copyright exception for text and data mining comes in, which is going to be changed, the government, so it's a bit of copyright news we can slip in, but um, <laughs> a few weeks ago the, the government announced they are going to broaden the copyright mm. exception for text and data mining. Publishers are currently Opposing that mm -hmm. um, and saying how it's going to undermine the UK publishing industry. These are arguments we've seen before. So we're definitely yeah. clearly needing to watch yeah. that space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Mitchell, can we take you back in time a little bit? I, I read, I think I read it on Twitter, but you, you said I think your early uh, or your first experiences in libraries was, I think, in Kent in Deal, yes. in the yes. public library. That's correct. Yes. yes. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I'm a self-confessed um, Kentish man. Ah, that's what we wanted to the know. Kentish man versus the man of Kent. Versus the man of Kent. Yes. 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 So what is the difference? Um, we're south of the Medway as opposed yeah. to north of the Medway. See, I'm, we're, we're both south of the Medway. Yes. 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 Here we are. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I, 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 we're sort of interested generally in the kind of people in your early career that, that kind of might right. have... Yeah. influenced you yeah. we, we call them copyright heroes we do have right. a, a jingle but they may just be you know people that have mentored and guided you in the world of yeah. libraries i, I yeah. think we need the jingle we like might give you a chance to have a think okay. yeah. some names yeah. Yeah. they help us when we're starting out and in our time of us to succeed. They're the people who we work with, brighten up our day, and validate our pedantry, and send us on our way. They are copyright heroes. So copyright heroes, or, or just kind of, you know, heroes more generally, are there, yeah. are there people you yes. say that were sort of, you know, yeah. pivotal in your yeah. career? Yeah. yeah, I'd say probably the first one was a woman called Beth Rainey, who was, ha had this wonderful job title called Keeper of Rare Books in Durham University Library. Well, mm -hmm. I was an undergraduate, I got involved in the college library, mm -hmm. I was paid over a summer vacation to move what was called the secondary sequence, which was just basically a room full of old stuff yeah. um, that a college library had to make room to enlarge the college bar. And I found all sorts of interesting looking old things there, old books, which I was very much drawn to. And yeah. I went to the university library to seek some advice and I got shown to this wooden door that had a brass plate on it that said, keep it a rare books. Ooh, that's, that's quite good. <laughs> and inside it was this wonderful person called Beth Rainey. Beth was a keeper of rare books, so she kind of helped, showed me reference books to find out what the date of this thing, these things were, and really kind of took me under her wing, and yeah. was very encouraging, introduced me to lots of her colleagues in the library, eventually encouraged me to apply for a graduate trainee job after I took my degree, which I did, so I stayed on in the university library for a year to work, and you know, set me off on this, you know, career journey that's got yeah. me here. So I owe a huge amount to Beth and, you know, incredibly generous with her time and knowledge and network. And that, you know, really stayed with me all the time. And that sort of philosophy that librarians should be generous in their, their, their time and helping other people, mm. particularly 
new entrance to the profession as well. Absolutely. Stayed yeah. with me. And then I guess the other kind of profound influence on me was uh, a man called Ian Mowat, who's the university librarian at Edinburgh. When I moved um, work in Edinburgh University Library which in 1999, Ian hired me. Mm. And he was a, you know, absolutely phenomenal kind of force of nature, really very much a, somebody interested in change and in the digital world, but also in seeing the value of you know, historic collections and special collections, archives, but also that sort of importance of listening to your community. Mm, mm. You know, um, he, was, he was always quoting Alexander Pope, so you know, okay. always consult the genius of Place was one of his great quotes. It's stayed, stayed with me yeah. um, ever since. And the genius of the place, meaning the students and researchers in the university. So that uh, he was a very kind of pr profound influence on me. And then there have been other people, sort of particularly since I moved to Oxford. Mm. Uh, I would say Cliff Lynch is one, the executive director of the Coalition for Networked Information. Yeah. Listening to Cliff talk, reading what he has to read, he's never wasted time, mm. it's always gold dust mm. of what, what he has to say. And then uh, as a historian, Timothy Garnash here in Oxford, somebody who's a kind of deeply used archives but you know thinks about their their kind of place in society from the perspective of the historian. And I don't know if you've ever read his book The Five. No, I think so as a graduate student he travelled to East East Germany. Right. And in the communist era, and then after unification, um, eventually he was expelled. Mm -hmm. um, and but he also travelled a lot to the Czech Republic and to or to Czechoslovakia and to to Poland, and was very much involved kind of in the the intellectual case for the pulling down the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Mm and stands up for freedom of expression and all, the, all of these kind of uh, ideas. And then after German reunification, the federal government established uh, an organisation to look after and to manage access to the files of the Secret Service, the mm. Stasi. Yeah. Mm. And this was developed by a Lutheran minister called Gerchen Gauck, and so the, the organisation was called the Gauk Authority, and Gauk eventually became the president of the Federal Republic. Mm. So that bit of the legislation that was established allowed citizens the right of access to their Stasi file. And this meant that they could see who was informing on them. So this is a really, really bold step. Mm. You know, mm. an incredible thing to do with two nations kind of come together. Mm. One completely changes its political regime mm. and every aspect of society that was driven by that political regime. And part of that was on the state-sponsored surveillance of the individual. Mm. And suddenly you give, you're forcing these two countries together, you're mm. forcing this incredible social change. And at the heart of it is the transparency of information. Yeah. And the, the archives become absolutely crucial in healing a, a society that's been torn asunder. Mm -hmm. And Timothy Gartnash goes back to Germany and exercises his right to see his own file mm. from the time when he was a graduate student there. And he then looks at the people who are informing on him and goes to find them and interviews them and speaks to them and tries to find out why, wow. what was going on. And of course it's very surprising. Yeah, it must yeah. have taken some courage. Incredible courage. It's a most incredible book. I really can't recommend it enough. Definitely, definitely one to read. Yeah. I, I, I still remember, I went to the Stasi Museum in Berlin about 10 years ago and it was, it, it was really quite yeah. sort of, I don't know what the word is, disturbing kind of unsettling yeah. experience going and seeing the level yeah. of surveillance that yeah. had been taking place. Yeah. yeah. So I think the more we have knowledge about the place of that sort of archival process mm. of documentation, of surveillance, mm. but also on the necessity of 
you know, access to it in due course or for it, that process to be regulated by mm. us, the citizens, and not to have that process imposed on us is so important. Mm. And I fear that that's kind of what's happening in the digital regime, is mm. that mm. the process of harvesting knowledge, of mm. capturing it, is being used against us mm. rather than for us. And people are so unaware of it. And we're so unaware. Yeah. Or we're, we're contributing aware of to it all the time. But as you say, we may be aware of it, but we're all addicted to it. We, mm. we, we know, but what, what are we going to do? Because yeah. actually life is, yeah. to, 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 to go about your business without a smartphone, without yeah. signing up to yeah. this service or that service, you're, you're excluded from Okay, mm. yeah. Well, I'm going to recommend another book for mm. you, okay. which is by a colleague of ours here in the, the Institute for AI Ethics, mm -hmm. Carissa Delith, okay. and her book is called Privacy is Power. Right. Uh, published uh, roughly at the same time as Burning the Books, A History yeah, of Knowledge yeah. and okay. uh, Attack. Readers who like this might also like this, as but the algorithm says. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, it's a personal recommendation. It's a personal recommendation. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds fascinating, actually, yeah. Yeah, I definitely. It's on my channels at home. Not Checking yet. that one out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But you are your your background is as a historian, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I, I've read history as an undergraduate. I, I kind of I knew that um, throughout when I'm I was a reading. member of the history faculty yeah. here, and um, yeah, and I do yeah. you know write about the history of. I think I think that that and some of the quotes you use really resonated with me from my yeah. historian pattern right. as well yeah. as an undergraduate. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking of those who don't know their, history. know their history are doomed to repeat it type yes, one yes. and I, I i think george santiana yes yes, yes. yes. As when i saw that at the start of the book i kind of immediately thought oh i'm, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this i'm going to enjoy this yeah so we've covered some, some very interesting but some weighty topics we but have. we do have a, a final question we'd like to we ask we don't you. have a jingle for it though, we don't do have we? Jingle. Maybe. he hasn't yet written the, the jingle for this final one we would like to know what your favorite type of cake Cake or sweet treat or dessert? Oh, well, that's very difficult. Um, I, I do have uh, something which I make quite often at Christmas mm -hmm. for my family, which is a, I'm just struggling, it's a Simon Hopkinson recipe, which is a kind of a chocolate cake with amaretti biscuits oh, inside, wow. which are soaked in alcohol. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Preferably brandy. Yes. And it's an incredibly rich concoction, yes. um, which you have to use double cream just to make it less rich. <laughs> so, um, do, the, do the Amaretti biscuits retain their crunch? Or do they no, they, they, don't, they go they quite soggy, soggy right. depending, well, obviously, depending on how much booze you pour yeah, in. Yeah. But that's, yeah. my, uh, that's, that's one I enjoy making. But I, I generally go for kind of chocolatey things. I think that's. I think this is the time to bring out. This looks. This looks. Sorry, really unpleasant. So that it was kept safe while I travelled. So these are homemade chocolate brownies. yes. We 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 took a guess that you might like chocolate brownies. So we're going to leave you some of these. Yes. We can't eat them while we're actually. We got told off for eating cake on microphone once. Yeah. And as I say, they they're kind of double wrapped. But they well, are. No, you this, so, this uh, looks like the will... use of um, <laughs> storage containers, Absolutely. which I thoroughly approve of. If you'll help. So we're going to leave you. We're going to leave you with some of those. Oh well, thank you very much. Yeah, I, uh, so I, homemade chocolate brownies. I accept. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. But thank you so much. I mean, this has just been absolutely fascinating conversation and yeah. really genuinely i listened to your book when it was serialized on radio 4 yeah. then read yes. bits of it and then i've kind of gone back in the last couple oh, of weeks well. and read it again and really very genuine in when i say I, I think all librarians but but actually people who really want to understand the importance of libraries should be reading that book it's fantastic thank so, you and thank oh. you for your time this yeah morning. well i've really enjoyed the conversation mm. yeah. thank you very much okay and so our podcast has come to its end And we know you have to go You only set aside an hour for 
there's one more gift we'd like to bestow. One last thing. There's been some nerdy chat. You've had enough of that, but one last thing. You stay around for one last thing. One last thing. So. That was Richard Ovenden in his office at the Clarendon building in Oxford. Yeah, that was fantastic, wasn't it? It was. And you know, the fact that he's ultimately my boss, hopefully I wasn't too obsequious. I don't think you were. No, not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> no, it was really great to talk to him. We're really grateful for him spending some time with us. We've got quite a few other podcasts still in the can. Um, so we you know we've got some amazing treats to share with you it's just about finding the time to actually do the editing yes Um, and it's summertime so we're going to both be taking a bit of a break mm -hmm. Uh, but we'll see whether we can get some editing done and get a few more out before term starts again in the autumn absolutely so thank you so much for listening this far and we look forward to you joining us again on another episode of copyright waffle Indeed. Copyright waffle. All right.